Hello everyone and welcome to Dairy Pods. I'm Rory McDonald from the Dairy Australia farm team. Spring is just around the corner, which means silage season is on the way soon for many dairy farmers across Australia. Whilst most farmers are experienced hands at making silage and storing silage, and also well aware of the potential for losses to occur during feeding out of silage, losses of dry matter during storage and in siling are often much higher on many farms than most people would think. Several management options exist to limit these losses of feed during storage, including the use of additives and inoculants. In this episode, Technical Services Manager for Lalamond Australia, David Lewis, joins Murray Dairy Regional Extension Officer Lisa Burrell to discuss these options in silage. Well, let's get straight into it with Lisa asking David to explain some of the basic terminology. I guess a lot of people just use additive or inoculant as a generic term. Uh, we probably need to break that down a little bit more that an inoculant is a bacterial product, so we're actually adding live bacteria to our silage for the fermentation. Uh, a preservative is, a, is another additive, which is generally uh, more in, in the hay area to use preservatives, although some historic silage use was in, so in Europe a lot of organic acids and those types of products used to be used but it's really swung across to using bacterial inoculants and there are other things that get lumped into the additives area too that don't really get used but molasses and other compounds that that people have used decades ago. So I think when people hear the word inoculant or additive they probably need to just know a little bit more about what is an inoculant and what is it doing. So can I just get you to expand on that a little bit, please, David? What is the advantage of the live bacteria in an inoculant? So the reason we're adding a bacterial forage inoculant is that the um, companies that do the research into these products select specific strains of bacteria that are good at producing lactic acid in the fermentation. So we're adding those in to be able to control, manage, drive the fermentation to be more efficient in the process of ensiling and give us more preservative in that fermentation and our silage will have a, a longer shelf life, uh, more stable at feed out um, and just less um, uh, feed value lost from that silage in the process. So essentially uh, being able to conserve the maximum amount of the crop as it was when we've mown it or harvested it. So to retain that nutritive value and that feed quantity. Before we just move into another area around inoculants, in a few words, David, what does an inoculant do? What's your sales pitch for why you must use an inoculant? We want to control the fermentation to give us a known outcome. So like the, the, the beer, the wine, the cheese maker, the bread maker, they all want to produce a consistent product. These are you know, preservation processes, food production. We want to manage that risk and have the same result every time we do it. So by adding you know, specific bacteria to control the fermentation, more efficient pathways, so the bacteria we add will, from one molecule of plant sugar will make two of lactic acid, which is the strong preservative, uh, whereas the, the wild, naturally occurring bacteria may not be that efficient. They might only make one of acid. So when we add a strain that makes two of lactic acid, we'll make less ethanol, hopefully no ammonia, 
and, and less water as byproducts of the fermentation. So for more efficient, a more efficient pathway, we have less undesirable compounds in our silage or the risk of them being made if it, if it goes wrong with a wild fermentation. So basically, the more lactic acid bacteria we can get there, the faster we can drop the pH of our silage, which means we're going to have a, a better fermentation and Abs hopefully a better quality Absolutely. product. Producing that lactic acid quickly gets the pH down quick, keeps the temperature lower. So if we have a long, slow fermentation, temperature is higher for longer, it burns up energy out of our feed, it uh, can heat enough to bind up protein, so then we've got a, a lower energy feed, lower protein, and it's just not a, as good an outcome for feeding our animals. That's what we're trying to conserve, is our energy and our protein. So in terms of a time frame, how quickly are we trying to drop that pH? Is it minutes, hours, days, what's? Well, it's, it's within a couple of days, basically, if we've added you know, a strong bacterial inoculant in there. We've got logarith logarithmic growth of those bacteria, and uh, that's where strains of different bacteria perform that differently. So having the right strain in the product to be able to produce that lactic acid rapidly within, you know, rapid doubling time within hours, and is about managing that fermentation rather than letting it drag on if the conditions aren't right. So that brings us to another point around inoculants, is how do people select the right one for what they're actually wanting to ensile? Part one of that is, what is the ensiling challenge that we face with the crops? So rather than look at what is the actual crop, we can probably break that down into, are we just after primary fermentation, uh, rapid fermentation of a, you know, spring silages, or have we got an aerobic spoilage risk or challenge likely to come from that? So that we've sort of, we can manage both those uh, parts of the fermentation with the, with the bacteria we add in the silage inoculant. So if I'm cutting some pasture silage, for example, what would be a common ensiling sort of a challenge that I might um, incur while ensiling pasture? Well, there could be many of them. This, it could be could be wet, it could be a low dry matter crop you're trying to ensile, so the bacteria in the field and don't really like working at low dry matters, so by adding inoculant we're actually increasing the numbers of the beneficial bacteria in there and uh, if we've got enzymes in there to assist those bacteria by release of some sugars, because if we've got a, a low dry matter crop it might be early spring, low sugar plants, harder to ensile, so the bacteria bacterial inoculant could be pushing us in the, a positive direction rather than the spoilage bacteria which like working in a low dry matter wet silage they will push us the wrong way so if we if the weather is perfect and the grass is perfect and all that yes we can make silage but we still want to control that fermentation and minimize our losses and any risk in, even in the in a perfect fermentation we can still reduce the dry matter loss if we're at the drier end of the scale where we've got a drier silage or we've got baled silage which is traditionally done drier, we want to have those bacteria in there to work hard and fast because if we've got less plant moisture, less exposure to those plant sugars, the fermentation can take longer as well and we can get a lot of heating or you know, the spoilage organisms, yeasts and moulds are able to live for longer. Uh, so we need to outcompete them. 
And obviously anytime we get any heat in a silage, we've obviously lost some nutritional value, which means we're not going to get as much milk when we come to feed it out to the cows. Yeah, and there's, there's different phases of that, as that yes, we do get some heat from the bacterial activity in the ensiling process, but if we have um, yeast activity in our silages, even while they're in storage, the a yeast in a low oxygen environment can consume lactic acid, which is our strong preservative, as the lactic acid is consumed, the pH starts to rise again and then yeasts and moulds can, can continue to grow and are degrading our feed. So sometimes we can have that happening while the, the silage is in the pit or in the bale in storage before we come to feed out. If we move on to cereal silage, which is something that's getting ensiled a lot more, and it can be cut at two stages, whether it's cut early, which does tend to have less tonnes, but a higher quality versus being cut more as a whole crop when you're really looking for starch. Is there a difference there between what type of inoculant to use between those two cutting phases or just in cereals in general, are there different inoculants versus our pasture ones? You could look at using uh, two different types of inoculants. So if early cut, uh, better plant moisture, a little bit easier to ensile, you could just use a basic inoculant. If you are going to a whole crop situation, you've got big hollow stems, you've got a drier plant, you've got more uh, yeast living on that plant by that stage in the field, you would use an inoculant. Look to use an inoculant that's going to manage aerobic stability issues. Uh, I do find that you, know, you probably want to use the one that manages aerobic stability, or secondary fermentation on all cereals really. If you do have large hollow stems, harder to compact, harder to reduce the risk. So you're saying there, David, that you can actually use two different inoculants on one cut, you know, that yep. you're ensiling. Yep, because identify the challenge rather than looking at the crop. So you can probably group that into, you know, A and B challenge, and then you've got your crops drop into that, whether they be a legume that's with a higher buffering capacity or they're a low sugar plant, or whether you've got a, a plant that's more prone to being unstable in the pit in that feed out with an aerobic stability challenge. And is that common practice? Do you find a lot of people actually use two different inoculants or people just think, no, nah, they'll all do the same thing, irrespective of what I'm ensiling? Well, it depends where you are you know, in, in Australia. So probably if you're further south in a cooler climate, wetter climate, you, you may swap from one to the other. But as you went north into a, a more hotter, drier, dustier environment, you would find that you would you know, tend to use the better one on everything because you, you go outside and you go, oh, I'm not sure what the day's going to be. For not much more cost, it's just going to cover your, your risk. And it just becomes standard practice for some of those people is that's, that's what they do. In terms of, and you touched on it a little bit before with, you know, loosens or vetches, they have a different challenges around ensiling. Um, do you want to just touch on briefly why they're a little bit more challenging to ensile to get a really good consistent product and how the inoculant really helps them? So legumes, loosen, vetch, peas, etc. they have a higher buffering capacity so that means that it's harder to get the pH down. It takes a lot more acid to drive that pH as low as what we would with a grass or a cereal or corn. However, it's not the end of the world. It's not impossible. We just end up with a pH that might be you know, in, the, in the fours rather than getting under four pH. Um, so 
we just using the inoculant just ensures we're going to get there. Managing the dry matter on legumes is is very much more important as well because we just want to concentrate that the lower sugars that may be there as well to into the right dry matter range to get the best fermentation we can. We just we can still make good legume and loosen silage at you know, a higher pH. And the ideal dry matter range, in your opinion, for those legume crops would be? 35, 36, if you can do that every day of the week, but sometimes you've got to start at 32 so that you can be finishing at 36. But most commonly you will see mould issues in legumes if you're at 38 or 40 dry matter. You may not see it in all of the stack, but you'll generally see it in the top half a metre quite easily if you're at the higher end of the dry matter range. You touched on before a little bit about the cost. Um, you know, what does it cost, just in round dollar figures? Are we talking about putting on some inoculant onto a, a tonne of dry matter? You know, just very oh, rough numbers. What a tonne really of dry matter? Um, I'd probably do it in per wet tonne, yep. probably a bit quicker off the top of the head. So it can be anywhere from, yeah, can be two or three dollars a tonne range, depending on what you're putting on. So yeah. it's two thirds of not much in well, in reality. You've still um, got to have the cash to pay for it. So. You've got to have the cash to pay for it. But as we've said, as a risk management strategy, yeah. because you're not sure whether you've actually done a good job or you haven't quite done a good job, because as you've talked about all the different challenges that can yeah. happen, it's, it is quite cheap insurance. Yeah. So, yes, it, so historically, meta-analysis and data that's been done on inoculant research and silage research over the last 20 or 30 years has always shown between a 5 to 1 and a 7 to 1 return on a dollar spent. Um, so it's, it's not hard to justify when you go, OK, it's proven that I'm going to have a 3 to 5% improvement in dry matter return. Uh, how do you quantify less spoilage compounds in my feed or less spoilage on my feed that I'm giving to an animal? Because a small amount of feed that is spoiled included in the diet drops intakes significantly, hence drops production, milk and meat. Um, animal health issues, insults on the rumen. So if I've got feed that I've then got to go and buy another product to help feed this feed, so there's a cost that I'm, I'm trying to put a band-aid on later, if I can reduce some of that risk in my silage making practices, it's gonna pay for itself, one, in production, and two, just in animal health issues, perhaps, that I can reduce the, the risk on farm. And I suppose if people aren't aware of these things and they're not measuring them, then it's very challenging to look at, well, I've spent X yeah. on my inoculant, and I'm really not sure what I've got for it, but from what you've just said, there's a lot of little bits and pieces there that actually add up to be quite a significant savings if you can yeah. get it right. All, the, all part of the you know, whole management process of silage. And at the end of the day, it's about conserving as much of the feed that we've grown in a state that is clean and healthy and hygienic to feed to our animals to get the you know, maximum production out of it but mainly make forages that animals want to eat, enjoy eating, and clean food. Which is all really important. And I suppose the other point, David, is that the farmer's the one that actually has control of this, doesn't, don't they? That they should be having the conversation with their contractors around what it is that they're after, and also a conversation around 
what inoculants that they're using or are they even using an inoculant and just an awareness as to the different types that are out there and what they're going to do for the product that they're trying to ensile. Well, yeah, I think they should, you know, whether you're using a contract or doing it yourself or whoever, all parties involved should have some uh, basic understanding of what, why they're using it, what the process is, how to get the most out of it to apply it correctly that it does work, you spend the money on it, you want to get, you know, properly applied. You don't want it to be like just putting sunscreen on your toes and going to the beach and hoping it's going to protect your whole body. You want to get it on properly and you want to know what it is you're buying. So just on, um, I like the little na- analogy of sunscreen on my toes versus my whole body. How do I know whether I have sunscreened my whole body versus just on my toes from an inoculant application point of view? Well, you've got, you've got to look at, you know, there's been research done on the volume of water that we need to apply inoculant in different systems. So, you know, water's the carrier for, for reactivating the freeze-dried bacteria that's in the inoculant, and then it's the carrier for applying it. Now, in a forage harvester, with the applicator in the right position or to apply it, we can apply it very low volumes because we, you know, people have done the data on how to apply a low volume, which can be 50 mils or less per tonne of silage, which is not a pretty small amount. Mm. Um, but then, you know, we know that we can't achieve low volumes like that in baled silage or in with loader wagons or something with a pickup. Uh, and that research has been done with. You know, forage harvesters and with balers to to figure that out that we can't get 50 mil of liquid and spread it along a couple of hundred metres of windrow and try and get good coverage but we can do it with one or two litres of water. So touching on the water how important then is the quality of water that we're using to mix yeah. with the inoculant? Clean water, cool water, we don't want water that's too hot that's going to kill bacteria so we don't want water that's 40, 50, 60 degrees, it's coming out of something hot. We want it to be cool, uh, clean. We don't want chlorine, so we don't want town water either that's gonna kill the bacteria. But you know, if we've got chlorinated water, we can let the chlorine gas off it for a day or so before we use it if we have to. But generally just something acceptable, clean stock water. So yeah, if it's good enough for my cows to drink, yep. then it's probably good enough for my inoculant. Depends, you look at some water troughs and you wouldn't drink it, so that's probably not a good analogy. (laughs) Don't want to use my recycled water, put it that way. Um, All waters obviously that are very high in salt. Um, So So, is it worth for some people, if they're not sure, just doing a water test to make sure that it's up to, or is that really going over the top? It's going over the top. If you wouldn't drink it, or if you wouldn't use it to mix up chemical to spray your crop, because it was going to be a problem with the spray, you wouldn't use it. Yeah. The other point to talk about is feed testing. You know, a lot of people don't feed their test their silage, but I'd like to encourage more and more people to feed test their silage. And when well, it comes to silage, we actually look at different things. So aside from looking at our NDF, our energy and our protein, which are the common ones that we look at, for silage, we also need to look at things like um, pH and ammonia nitrogen. And sometimes you need to pay a little bit more for your test to get these. In your opinion, David, when I know you're not going to put a ration together, that's not what you do, but I know you look at a lot of feed tests to see how good the quality of the uh, fermentation was. What are you looking for? What are those little extra bits that you're looking for in a feed test to say that, yep, that's bang on fermentation or that, gee, absolutely missed the mark? What are we looking at? Okay, well, I I agree with you. We should test more, 
more feed so that we can segregate feed as to how we feed animals rather than just call it all the same. Uh, but when I do look at these feed tests, as you said, I don't look at it to make a feeding decision. I look at those things to see if we've lost something. So I might look at the protein and energy but uh, and the NDF, but I would also go on to look at the ammonia, ethanol, the acids, ash. So have we had contamination that's come from somewhere, uh, soil contamination, or have we had uh, high dry matter losses that have left us with more ash, less digestible, uh, more water in this in high dry matter. So water's a byproduct of spoilage, so just, things like that. Just on your ash, ideally, what are you looking at less than? Uh, if it's, a, if it's a, a wilted crop that we've picked up off the ground, we've mown and raked it, if it's under 10, no problem. If it's 10 and above, say 12, we, we might go, we might think, has there been some dust included, some soil picked up with the mower or the rake? Is there any losses? And then you, some, I had one the other day that was simply, it was made dry. Um, there was a lot of energy lost in the slow wilt. There was a lot of protein lost because it was dry and the leaf was bashed off it. Uh, just stuff like that that you pick up and the fermentation was fine for what it was. It just had, they were mechanical losses. Yep, and ammonia nitrogen sort of yeah, levels, so, uh, what's that um, going to um, tell us about um, our silage? Higher ammonia levels is going to tell us if we've lost protein. So if that protein has been converted to ammonia by spoilage organisms or in a, in a poor fermentation. But do speak to your advisor about your ammonia N and in the top fodder resources on the Dairy Australia website, you can actually look up that number yeah, there is as some, well. Yeah, there is some good simple guidelines out there on you know, what does this level of ash, ammonia, ethanol, what does it mean to my feed? You know, and, and how could I have, or what to look for, could I have changed something if I had my time again to do it differently? And that's a really great segue into my next question, David, is... If it comes outside of that, and Ash, you've already talked about that it could have been spoilage, um, it could be uh, um, a lot of you know dirt, it's been wet or whatever that you've picked up. But if you've got high ammonia N levels and you know ethanol's not right, what do people need to remember before they do it again next year so they don't keep repeating the same mistake year on year? I think one of the main things to think about is um, consider that. All the feed in the paddock can be contaminated, whether it be just naturally occurring bacteria, good bugs, bad bugs, yeast and moulds in the field. Uh, is there soil content, rain splash on the bottom of the plants? You know, has there been effluent on the paddock? Any manure applications, even nitrogen applications? All these things are, add challenge to making silage. So I think they're probably the key things to think about. It's, it's the whole process. It's not just on the one day. It's the whole process from growing the crop right through to feeding the cow. And if you notice something's wrong during the process, can you correct it or you've just got to go, oh, stuff that up. I've got well, to remember that for next year. Only if you're measuring what you're doing. <laughs> so if you're, if you're guessing what the dry matter is or you're, you're guessing some of these things, no, you probably can't unless you're going to look and measure and take notice while it's happening because when you're making silage two hours is a long time sometimes 
So dry matter measurements you can do for your pasture silages, your cereal yeah. silages and yeah. everything else Easy. and just check to make sure that you're on track. Um, it's, it gives you the basis of, of, to start with, am I at the right moisture range or when will I be, will I have to tet it, will I have to do whatever, do I need to be ready now or tomorrow or the next day, what's going on? And they're just great little checks that you can do just say, make sure that you actually stay in control of what you're producing. Because at the end of the day, the farmer is the person that pays for it, whether it's good, bad or otherwise silage, whether they've done it themselves or they've had a contractor, they pay a price for it. Yep. And ultimately that can be loss of milk in the vat. So my final question, David, and with your expertise is, how do I select an inoculant? I walk into the Bunnings warehouse of inoculants you know, there's beautiful, nice, shiny ones. There's fantastic, colourful labels. How do I select the best one? Well, I don't know whether the labels are that colourful, but uh, <laughs> the information that you seek should be on the label, uh, but you probably need to, to know what to actually look for and to des decipher that label a little bit. You know, it should be like if you go to buy a, a chemical at the farm shop, you look on the label to see what the active ingredient is and how much of that active ingredient is in there and, and do you know it as it got a specific mode of action etc and some instructions. So when we come to bacteria on the, on the label we want to see what are the bacteria that's on the label. Uh, do they actually have a strain number because there's lots of bacteria that start with lactobacillus or pediococcus, there's thousands of them but some of them are, are great for forage, some of them are great for wine. <laughs> So, and some of them are pretty useless in, in agriculture. So you want to know which one you're getting. There'll be a combination because they generally work in combination for, you know, work in different pH ranges, different temperatures, etc. So the companies that research and produce this stuff, they put the name on there, they put the strain number on there so that then you can actually, if you, if you seek to find further information and data, you can go back and find it because it should be research proven, field tested. Uh, it should give you a, a quantity on the label of how much active ingredient is in there, either per gram of the actual product or per gram of applied to the crop. So it can be written in two ways. And is uh, more better? Only if... If they're the right ones. If they're the right ones. So I'll give you a quick example. So you can have a str one strain of Pediococcus that you can put in at, say, 10,000 CFUs, and it will out compete uh, Lactobacillus plantarum if you put it in at 100,000 CFUs, so 10,000 versus 100, in yeah. four hours the Pediococcus will have you know, tenfold beaten it in reproduction. Yep. So that's why there's different strains in there as a combination that to cover that, you know, it's like a relay race yep. for the bacteria. And so you want to see that on the label, a bit of a guarantee that you know that it's got how much is in there and what it's going to do for you and uh, some good instructions so as you know what to do with it. And all companies would have product safety and data sheets available on their websites if people yeah, want to find we, information actually, for this? Well, I don't know whether they do or not, but I know um, you can get a certificate of analysis for products, the same as if you get it for a feed ingredient or whatever. So it's a, yeah, the product has been tested and, and actually gives you a guarantee of the activity level in that product dated and signed. Um, you don't often see them at the farm level but they're generally they're somewhere available in the system. Yep.
So really it's worth, if you're not sure if you're applying an inoculant, it's worth having a conversation with your contractor to see that you are and which one they're using and whether it's going to have the outcome that you want for your silage. Yes, there is a cost involved in putting an inoculant on, even if you think you're doing every single step in the process 100% perfectly, there's always a risk. And inoculant is, is an insurance product to help manage it, to manage that stability of the product, whether it's in a bale or whether it's in a pit. Um, and you do need to know which inoculant or inoculants, as I've learned from David, that you could be using, depending on what your outcome is, for that product and what you're trying to, how quickly you're trying to get that fermentation correctly. So David, that was a great conversation today. So thank you very much. All right, it's a pleasure, Lisa. And I don't see it as a risk management tool. I just see it as part of good practice in farming. Absolutely. Thanks to David and Lisa for guiding us through some of the myths and realities of inoculants and additives. Some great advice also from David on some of the parameters to look out for in your silage feed test. As Lisa mentioned, you can find out more information on inoculants in the top fodder section at the DA website at dairyaustralia.com.au. You might also like to consider signing up for a top fodder course in future. Contact your regional Dairy Australia team if you're interested. That's it for this episode of Dairy Pod. As always, we'd love to hear about any guests you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like to see covered in future podcasts feel free to drop us an email at dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.